Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Today, uh, we are going to continue our coverage uh, in this podcast of the ATS core curriculum, uh, an effort that uh, came out of uh, presentations made at the American Thoracic Society uh, in 2014. It's my great pleasure to have Dr. Grace Pien with us, who is the lead author on the uh, core curriculum to be published uh, in November of uh, 2014 on uh, sleep. And I need to mention uh, that this was a multidisciplinary and multi-authored uh, effort that uh, you will be able to review in detail uh, in the upcoming Annals of the American Thoracic Society. So we have uh, a, a few questions to get this started with Dr. Pien. Um, Dr. Pien, uh, I should mention, is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Johns uh, Hopkins University uh, and uh, has a, a strong interest in clinical research uh, in sleep medicine. So, uh, Grace, uh, uh, we'll start with periodic limb movement disorders. Uh, is this the same uh, as restless leg syndrome? How uh, should we decide uh, how to diagnose it and how it should be treated? Well, um, I think that uh, one thing to realize is that periodic limb movements on, that, are, that are seen on a sleep study in and of themselves are often an incidental finding and are, are not necessarily that helpful to make the diagnosis of, of restless legs, actually. So most of the time, periodic limb movements actually have not, um, don't really have a strong impact on sleep. They're oftentimes unassociated with arousals. Um, and uh, most patients who have restless leg syndrome, while they do have periodic limb movements, uh, we really, when we make the diagnosis of, of restless leg syndrome, we really are relying on whether the patient has, um, has symptoms of restless legs, such as having uncomfortable or painful sensations in their legs, um, the circadian uh, uh, timing of the discomfort that they um, usually have in the evening or as they're lying down to go to bed, relief with movement, um, those are the symptoms that we're relying on. And, uh, and so while we oftentimes see periodic leg movements um, during a sleep study uh, in patients who have restless legs, they're not necessary for diagnosis. And conversely, periodic leg movements, unless they are associated with um, frequently with arousals and unless there is no other etiology of sleep disturbance, usually are not um, are not treated in and of themselves. And uh, Grace, when you say in and of themselves, do you mean that uh, we can expect that, uh, for example, CPAP or uh, other types of specific therapy for sleep apnea might uh, improve periodic limb movement? So um, sometimes they do. So uh, for some patients, what we will see if they have um, if, if they have a laboratory sleep study 
is that um, is that they will have limb movements um, in conjunction with arousals from sleep due to apneas or hypopneas. Um, in fact, actually, those uh, limb movements are are not scored when they're part of the arousal, and uh, and so sometimes we will see that um, that with CPAP treatment and with the elimination of sleep disordered breathing events, um, patients will continue to have periodic limb movements and they'll get worse. On the other hand, or or they will have periodic limb movements that are now scorable, whereas uh, when they were associated with um, with respiratory events, they uh, they were not scorable. So sometimes the periodic limb movement index actually increases with treatment of sleep apnea. On the other hand, sometimes patients are um, arousing or having periodic limb movements uh, that uh, that really are because they are having respiratory events, and in those cases, sometimes they actually do, the periodic limb movement index does decrease with treatment with, with CPAP. So, um, so it's a little bit hard to predict um, which of those things is going to happen, um, but I think that the, the message is that most of the time, periodic limb movements in and of themselves are not, um, do not uh, require treatment unless they're clearly associated with arousals from sleep and there's not another etiology of sleep disturbance. Um, one other uh, uh, question that always comes to mind, when, when would you uh, use uh, uh, pharmacologic therapy uh, in uh, either periodic uh, limb movement or uh, overt restless leg syndrome? So for restless leg syndrome, um, uh, we generally want to make sure that there's not an underlying um, cause of, uh, of the restless legs, um, such as uh, anemia that's associated with perhaps with iron deficiency. Um, so, uh, you know, restless legs can also be precipitated by acute blood loss, such as after surgery. Um, uh, anesthesia also increases the risk, so sometimes patients um, will have restless leg syndrome that's precipitated in the hospital. Uh, more commonly, though, uh, we also see that there are other risk factors for, for restless legs. Um, uh, pregnancy is obviously one that, uh, that is usually self-limited. Um, patients who have um, end-stage renal disorder, for instance, may have restless legs. Um, so, so just thinking about underlying causes of uh, restless legs and treating those um, is, uh, is something to consider. And um, then the dopaminergic medications have um, generally uh, been found to be effective for, for treatment, though there also is recent evidence that uh, the gabapentin is also a, an effective, um, effective treatment. That was a trial that um, uh, was published uh, in the New England Journal, I think about a, a year ago or so. Um, for, for periodic limb movements, again, um, in patients who, who do have an arousal index related to periodic limb movements that's greater than 10 to 15 and not another um, cause of uh, sleep disturbance, um, so, you know, the same pharmacologic treatments can be considered, though there's, there's less evidence to, you know, really say exactly what the, the right arousal index, you know, threshold is for, for treatment for these patients. 
Well, we're going we're gonna to move on, and uh, a big trend in uh, clinical sleep medicine is the uh, uh, movement towards more use of home or unattended sleep studies. Uh, I, I wondered if you could uh, c- kind of guide the clinician uh, through what, uh, what indications you have for using either an in-lab or a home uh, unattended sleep study, and if you view them as equivalent or under what situations you would use one or the other. Um, sure. So, so unattended or home sleep studies usually refer to what we think of as, um, as uh, type uh, three or four um, studies, and, um, and whether they're type three or four depends a little bit or depends on the number of um, channels that are being recorded. At a minimum, um, home sleep testing or HST uh, includes airflow, respiratory effort, and oxygen saturation. So there's usually some type of uh, band around the chest and abdomen to measure respiratory effort and oxygen um, uh, pulse oximeter and, um, and an airflow channel. Um, and uh, whereas with polysomnography, um, as I'm sure uh, our listeners are aware, includes also the EEG um, leads, uh, muscle leads, uh, both for the, for the chin, um, as well as for the legs and channels for eye movement um, and uh, also the EKG, though that oftentimes is actually included in, um, in HSTs. So, so home or unattended sleep testing really um, is mostly for the, to make the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea, and that's the area where it really has been studied and validated. Um, uh, and... So for patients who have a, um, a high likelihood of having obstructive sleep apnea and who don't have um, significant comorbidities, um, they don't have, for instance, uh, congestive heart failure, significant COPD, um, et cetera, then, then those are patients that can, um, can certainly be appropriate for um, for home sleep testing, um, but uh, I think that uh, that we have to remember that patients who are suspected of having central sleep apnea or having non-respiratory sleep disorders, those are patients who would really be better served um, uh, in terms of making the diagnosis in uh, in the sleep laboratory. And for patients who have things like circadian um, circadian disorders, restless legs, and insomnia, those are patients who generally, unless we are excluding sleep disorder breathing, um, uh, are patients who do not require either an HST or overnight laboratory um, polysomnography. Um, HSTs should be reviewed by, um, hopefully by a trained sleep technician and a sleep specialist or somebody who's experienced in reading these studies. Um, that many of them are capable of, uh, of just uh, spitting out um, an AHI, but, uh, but it's important, um, I think, for those to be, for that data to be reviewed to make sure that, um, that it's, that artifact um, and uh, bad, data is excluded, and, um, and I think that it's important to remember that there should be a plan for patients who undergo HST um, to 
if they, if they, for instance, um, uh, have a result that seems inconsistent with their clinical symptoms, um, that there's a plan uh, for further investigation with, if necessary, an in-laboratory um, sleep study. I think that, uh, that clinicians should just remember that um, the HSD does, does tend to underestimate the, um, the true, uh, the acne hypopnea index, and um, that's for a couple of, of different reasons. One is because um, home sleep testing usually uses, um, use, usually uses the entire time from, um, uh, from when it starts until when it ends. You know, perhaps there's a marker that the patient presses uh, to indicate when they're, they're going to bed and getting up, and uh, so it actually overestimates um, sleep time um, because it's not counting actual sleep, but, um, but this period in between the start and end, and uh, thus the, um, the denominator of time is, is larger than true sleep time. Um, the other thing that HST does not do is it does, is unable to, um, to pick up uh, arousals that are unassociated with oxygen desaturation, and uh, for that reason, a patient who may not have much desaturation but still is having um, having arousals due to respiratory events um, is going to have an AHI that's that's underestimated during an HST as compared to um, to a laboratory polysomnography. So, who would you uh, send definitely into the lab? Uh, for, um, for a, a patient, a full polysomnography. Okay, so uh, a patient who in whom I suspected uh, obesity hypoventilation, uh, for instance, um, uh, in addition to sleep apnea, would be a patient I think uh, that I would like to, uh, to do a laboratory study on rather than just an HST because we can't do. Um, because uh, it's not as good for picking up hypoventilation and central central apneas um, have not been um, as well validated. Patients who have moderate to severe pulmonary disease, um, so patients who have uh, significant uh, COPD or interstitial lung disease, for instance, patients who have significant neuromuscular disease where we may be more concerned about whether they have hypoventilation than obstructive apnea per se. Um, patients who have heart failure um, are probably patients who should go to the laboratory because they may have um, some significant central apnea or chain stokes respiration, um, another area where HST has not been as well validated. Um, and uh, and um, patients who have morbid obesity, um, both because they're at risk for obesity hypoventilation and um, can, al- can also present some uh, technical uh, uh, challenges. So I think well, all all of those uh, types of patients are probably patients who um, would uh, would um, be better served by by having in laboratory polysomnography. And uh, I just wanted to this, this there's obviously no said answer, but uh, uh, do you uh, usually recommend a, a CPAP titration if there is significant uh, sleep apnea on a uh, unattended or home study uh, in lab where uh, do you feel comfortable just ordering it based on what you see? Um, well, uh, it, it, uh, I, I do think that many patients um, benefit from having laboratory, um, uh, from having a titration study. Um, as you know, that's kind of the the 
more traditional um, pathway to determine a fixed CPAP pressure. Um, however, uh, for patients who um, would prefer to stay out of the laboratory, for instance, or whose insurance um, dictates that they, uh, they do an out-of-laboratory testing and, um, and treatment pathway, um, I do think that there is sufficient evidence that, that many patients can um, be effectively treated with auto-titrating CPAP um, either on a longer-term basis or, um, or for a fixed period to, to look at uh, what pressure is, is usually sufficient um, and, then, uh, and then converted to, um, to fixed CPAP after a period of auto-titrating CPAP? Uh, well, I think this is very good uh, uh, information. I, I just wanted, I was turning on the uh, TV, uh, turned to C-SPAN, and there in front of me was a full CDC conference on sleepy driving. And I know there's an excellent section in your article uh, about sleepy driving, but I wonder if you wanted to make some key points uh, for uh, uh, our audience. Um, sure. Uh, so in our paper, um, so Kingman Stroll gave the, uh, the talk on, on this section um, during the ATS conference, and, um, and, and during uh, this section of the core curriculum, the focus was really on um, drowsy driving in patients with sleep apnea um, uh, and more and, and focused on non-commercial drivers, but uh, as you might have picked up from um, uh, from the C-SPAN coverage, there really is a a lot of interest um, now in holders of commercial driver's licenses who um, who have to complete a Department of Transportation exam to obtain or renew their their um, commercial driver's license. And um, in uh, Baltimore, where I see patients, there uh, clearly has been an increased interest on the part of, um, of some of the uh, occupational um, uh, health uh, companies who certify drive or who, you know, do the health exam for, for drivers um, on making sure that they are screened um, for uh, sleep apnea and that, uh, that treatment is initiated if they, if they do have significant apnea. So, so that being said, um, for, for all patients who are undergoing an evaluation for sleep disorders, I um, uh, think that uh, there should be uh, drow uh, some questions about drowsy, drowsy driving should be part of the history. Um, and uh, just also remembering that, that insufficient sleep is, uh, is probably the most common cause of, of drowsy driving um, ahead of, uh, of sleep disorders per se, um, but, uh, but I think in our patients who are being evaluated for, um, for sleep apnea and other sleep disorders, um, we should ask them about sleepy driving, um, ask about comorbid issues, um, not just uh, insufficient sleep, but also alcohol use, medications, um, other, med uh, other medical conditions that may contribute to drowsy driving. 
um, in terms of prioritizing these patients, um, certainly a patient who is uh, who admits to drowsy driving perhaps has had a near miss um, or even a motor vehicle accident uh, related to drowsy driving um, should be prioritized, I would say, for, uh, for an expedited evaluation um, uh, for sleep apnea or, or as their, their history um, indicates. And um, I think that, that uh, you know, we may be tempted to, to go ahead and um, treat these patients uh, either with CPAP or stimulants um, right off the bat, even before they come into the laboratory. But I, I think that uh, it's wiser, um, and as per the uh, ATS uh, statement that came out in this area, um, there really needs to be... Uh, you know, diagnosis established before we start treatment, um, and uh, uh, you know these patients should be certainly be counseled, um, counseled about their driving risk, um, which is increased among patients who have sleep apnea as well as other um, other patients with uh, patients with other sleep disorders. Well, re- recently the um, uh, public transportation authorities in New York State have been. Uh, mandated to uh, uh, test, uh, train, and uh, bus operators for sleep apnea. Should these these people be getting uh, in lab studies or home studies, or doesn't doesn't matter? Well, I I um, I think that that's a, a somewhat difficult question. Um, you know, I, I think that to some extent there is a, what I would consider to be a chain of custody um, issue uh, with regards to home sleep testing uh, because a, somebody that you send home um, with a home sleep study, you know, could know that he or she has apnea, decide yeah. that they don't want to be... Put it sleep. on their brother, right? Exactly, and they could put it on their, their brother or their... Um, you know who who does you know uh, doesn't have any symptoms or or indi- you know signs of sleep apnea. Um, so so I. So no, I think there's an excellent excellent point. I mean, yeah, For that reason, I think that there really um, should be uh, at this point um, with the available technology, um, uh, most of these patients should probably be having laboratory sleep studies if you're um, if they're having this done as part of an occupational health evaluation for for something like a commercial driver's license um, uh, that being said i I will say that uh, personally I just ran into this issue with an insurance company not wanting to to cover that so I don't uh, really know how that's going to play out so um, it's a new uh, new challenge that uh, sleep clinicians are are going to uh, right. Have I, I to agree, face. and I think that there is. Um, I'm not sure whether this technology is actually in use now, but I think that that there are perhaps some ways to um, uh, there are or may be some ways in the future for HST to um, to fulfill that kind of chain of custody um, uh, issue. Uh, so that we can ensure that that if patients are having HSTs, that they um, they are actually being done on the the patient in question. Um, but uh, uh, I think also because HST can underestimate um, uh, the true the AHI, 
as uh, as I talked about earlier, uh-huh. that that's another another reason that it could be useful to um, or more helpful to do a laboratory sleep study. Um, you know, I think that most drivers do want to do the right thing, um, and uh, uh, that we just have to help them to get there. But uh, I think you know, just talk. I think that uh, that just being upfront with patients. Um, uh, dry, you know, both commercial drivers and non-drivers, that this is something, you know, where obviously they put themselves at risk, but also others, um, you know, is, is something that's important to discuss and, uh, and also to discuss uh, potential countermeasures that, that people can take, you know, just pulling off the road to take a nap, um, uh, letting somebody who is, is not sleepy, um, not otherwise impaired, you know, drive, um, just, uh, just those simple things, you know, um, and, uh, and just raising, raising awareness. Um, what, one final question I had was uh, until the diagnosis is fully established, if someone has to drive for their occupation, is it sufficient to give them uh, alertness med- medications uh, like uh, ProVigil or NuVigil? Um, or uh, do they, or do we take the step of telling them that they they can't uh, pursue their occupation until we uh, make that diagnosis and initiate treatment? So um, for for commercial driver's license holders, um, there there are some uh, guidelines that um, that have uh, been endorsed by a number of um, of uh, organizations, and, and Alan, I, I know that they came out uh, three or four years ago, so, so, so there so are... what would you personally do uh, in, in these cir- circumstances? Okay. So, um, so for patients who are commercial drivers, there are some recommendations about whether, um, about who should be out of service, and, and patients who... Um, who admit to being sleepy, who have had a motor vehicle accident um, already. Uh, There's some other criteria that I'm not recalling exactly right now. Um, should, should actually probably be pulled out of service. There are other patients, um, other individuals who, uh, for whom there are recommendations about uh, doing expedited evaluation. Um, and, uh, and usually, uh, in my experience, I, would say, I, I should say, um, we're seeing that these drivers are given 90 days to complete, um, complete their evaluation uh, before, um, uh, before they can get their license renewed. And, um, and that usually, for, for most people, if they you know, are being attentive to this, that is enough time for them to, to undergo diagnostic evaluation and get treatment initiated. Um, for patients who have moderate to severe apnea, what we are seeing is that, um, is that they are asked to show um, that they are using uh, CPAP um, uh, for sleep apnea and that they're adherent um, to, uh, uh, to CPAP with pretty much the same as the, the Medicare guidelines, so 70% um, of nights and at least four hours per, um, per night. Um, if they're using another modality like oral appliances um, or uh, uh, or surgery, then what we're seeing is that um, they're being um, asked to uh, to have a post-treatment study or, or a study on treatment, demonstrating that um, that the the treatment is effective. Um, and and 
in terms of, um, of treatment in the interim, um, there is not, you know, the ATS uh, uh, guideline in this area uh, from 2013 actually says that there is, quote, no compelling evidence to restrict driving privilege in patients with um, sleep apnea if, um, if there has been no motor vehicle accident or equivalent event and also recommends that we do not treat um, patients who are suspected of sleep apnea um, uh, with, with stimulants um, or Empiric-CPAP prior to a diagnostic evaluation. So, um, so I think that the message is get the, establish the diagnosis and then start treatment. Um, but, uh, but in general, you know, I think that, uh, that physicians want to be aware of local regu- um, rules and regulations um, for, for their area. Um, and, uh, and over time, I think that there has become more, um, more interest in passing laws in some, um, some states uh, about, uh, about drowsy driving in general, especially due to um, untreated, untreated sleep disorders or, um, or because of, um, of insufficient sleep. Um, but uh, but not necessarily reporting patients um, unless we think that they really are uh, at high risk of of injuring um, others, perhaps because they are known to have severe sleep apnea and um, and known to be um, non-adherent to treatment. Well, I I just want to. Uh say that this was just a, a wonderful discussion and we th- certainly have to thank Dr. Pien for uh, sharing her very uh, valuable time and uh, superb uh, knowledge with us. I, I just wanted be- before signing off to uh, ask uh, Grace to recommend some additional material in the area of uh, the neurobiology of sleep, uh, as th- uh, this was covered in an excellent fashion, but might be supplemented by uh, some additional uh, reading material. So, um, so the the section in um, in the core curriculum paper uh, uh, is is a very concise review. And, um, and I think that for somebody who is really interested in, um, in the neurobiology of sleep from a clinical perspective, there's really an excellent uh, review from the journal Sleep uh, in 2011 that was authored by um, Rodrigo Espana and Tom Scammell. And, um, and uh, Dr. Smusiak uh, himself, um, who, who wrote this section, in the uh, in the article, um, also has a review that's one of the references. That, that's another nice review. Um, but uh, uh, from the clinical perspective, um, I would suggest the uh, the Sleep 2011 paper, which is another one of the of the the references uh, within the the section um, in the core curriculum paper. So uh, once again, thank you. Dr. Pien, and uh, this is Dr. Alan Fine uh, for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Uh, We have reviewed the core curriculum uh, on sleep, uh, which uh, will be published in uh, this month in the um, 
uh, uh, in the annals. Thank you, Dr. Pien.